Let me remind you of what we're studying. Let's get our feet on the tracks again. We are studying Christ this summer. Our home is Colossians 1, 15 through 23. These verses are, are like the summit. I've got to make sure I'm recording, sorry. And now this awkward woman will be in the recording. Yeah, okay. So these verses that we're studying, guys, they're like the summit of what Paul has to say about Christ. Okay, many commentators and scholars would say that it is in Colossians 1 that you get the most explicit information about who Christ is. That's what we are studying. From this text, we've been moving all over the Bible, right? We've been going to the Old Testament references that Paul uses, and then we're looking at times when Christ himself reveals his identity. This will help us understand both the treasures and the riches of Christ. So let's now build, let's keep building on what we've already learned. So first of all, we learned that Christ is the image of the Father. That means he shows us how to bear the image of God. He shows us who God is, and he also shows us how to be human. Secondly, he is the firstborn. The son is the firstborn. So the royal heir holding authority and ruling with power. We heard that he is the better Adam, that he obeyed when Adam failed, that he brought life when Adam brought death. Go back, guys. Listen to that talk again last week. I've listened to it three times. I'm just continuing to claim the victory that is mine in Christ. So what about this week? We read that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. All right, guys, here's, here's the plan for tonight. Here's, here's our hope for Bible study. I hope that when you guys come here, it feels somewhat like coming to church on a Sunday morning, um, but I hope it does feel a little bit different. I mean, we purposely take the time to set up these tables every week so that you will feel more engaged. Where Sunday you sit and you receive the word from the pastor. Here, I hope that you're even more involved because you've been in the text all week. I hope that you are feeling engaged as a student. I want you to leave feeling motivated. I mean, I want you to feel like there's a sense of like, oh my goodness, there's energy around what I'm learning. However, I also hope that you don't just feel like it was a pep rally, but that you feel like your mind was engaged. And so I wanna just kind of show you how we're gonna talk through this tonight to kind of show you um, what, what's been going through my mind as we talk through just these two verses. First, we are gonna talk to each other's minds, okay? We are going to be informed by the text. And then we're gonna look at how does this verse comfort me? How does it speak to my heart? And then how does that flow out into my hands? So how can it challenge us? Okay, so it's gonna inform us. The text will inform us. It'll comfort us. And then it'll challenge us. It'll give us something to do in light of it. Okay, so you can kind of listen for that as we go through this week's material. Okay, so let's start. Verse 17. He is before all things. Okay, before creation, Christ was there. Before time began, before the clock started, Christ was there. We saw in our homework before the nation of God, before Abraham was born, there was Christ. Before page one, there was Christ. 
And we looked at how Jesus actually made these claims about himself even. We looked into John 8, where Jesus said, before Abraham, I am. Okay, Abraham is probably familiar to some of us, right? Father Abraham had many sons, right? He was the patriarch, the the main guy of the Jewish people. Um, Jesus is saying, hey, I was there before Abraham, but did you pick up on this small little detail? What else is Jesus saying about himself? He says, before Abraham, I am. Does that take anybody back to a story of Moses? where Moses encounters God in this burning bush and God says to, him, says to him, I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. So here we see Jesus not just showing that he was there before all things, but that he is God. It was speaking of his deity. It's like he's ripping off of this familiar Jewish story from Exodus. Guys, this was crucial for the people in, the Colossi, in, the, in Colossae. This was crucial for them to hear this, just like it is for us, because we need to see that Jesus, although he's the son of God, was never created, okay? We must understand that he was never created. He has always been and always will be. He is the first and the last. So if, if we were to believe that, that he was created, then what that could lead us to believe is that he's somehow less than God. And we could see how we get there, right? I mean, he's the son of God and we see him become a human and we see him obey and go to the cross. But in his very essence, guys, we must believe that he is not less than God in any way because it is that thought that could actually lead us to believe some of the false teachings that were maybe similar to what this church was facing. He's not making his debut in the Christmas story, okay? Jesus in the manger, that's not his debut. The whole of scripture is his story. I was thinking about this. I say this all the time. This is the whole story is about Jesus. And maybe some of you are tempted to to shut me out when I say that so often. But I was thinking about this. Have you ever um, walked into a movie late and tried to figure out like tried to understand the main character. You know, like maybe you've, you got stuck in traffic and you got to the movie theater late or you walked in maybe with a group of friends and they had already started a movie. And you're, you're sitting down halfway through and you're trying to make sense of this main character. Why is he behaving like that? Why is he speaking like that? I don't understand. And, and you really like never fully appreciate it or catch on to it. I actually remembered this as I was uh, thinking about this illustration. So this was actually really fun to remember. I was taken back to, I think it was my very first date ever, guys. I was a freshman in high school and this guy, I won't say his name because hashtag internet, um, but he um, was a little edgy and he wore Metallica shirts and had lots of things pierced, and he was the drummer in our jazz band, and he asked me out. And I, of course, said, only if you come to church with me. (laughs) And so he agreed to it, but because it was taking him so long to talk me into going to that movie with him, we actually ended up going in late. So my very first date was walking in late to a movie with a Metallica lover. And um, guys, of all the movies to walk in late to, we walked in late to The Sixth Sense. Okay, 
what was that guy's name? What's the main actor's name? Bruce Willis? Yeah, okay. I didn't get the first scene. And if you're too young, oh, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm sorry. Um, guys, you cannot make sense of that movie at all without the first scene. And I am like trying to connect the dots through the whole thing and, and never got there. Okay, so that is a sad slash funny story. But sometimes I think that that's what happens when we only study the New Testament trying to understand Christ. Okay, I believe that that is actually the reality of looking in the New Testament alone without the old. But that's not what we're doing as we study Colossians because that's not what Paul was doing. So consider with me an Old Testament story that might be familiar to some of you. Um, Genesis 15 is where I was going. You know, we had that reference to Abraham. And so here's another story of Abraham. Um, and you don't have to turn there. I'm just gonna give us the quick synopsis of this. But this is when God makes a covenant with Abram. And it says this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Okay, guys, this story has this tiny little detail that I have overlooked for so long that adds to our point that we can study Christ from the Old Testament. It says these things. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a, anyone catch it? Vision. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and we would just keep reading. But wait a minute, does this make sense, guys? We think the word of the Lord and we think you hear a word. But this is saying the word of the Lord came to him in a vision. And he says it again in verse four. I mean, could it be that in this scene, in this covenant scene, there's a hint there that this three in one God would make himself both heard and seen. That the word, the word of God, the voice of God is visible. And guys, if we wanted to, and we wanted to sit in this text even longer, maybe we would start to see that there's even more here. So here is a covenant. So it's a deal between God and his people. It involves a sacrifice. That sacrifice involves blood. And through the whole thing, Abraham is asleep. So maybe if we're spending our time here, and studying well, we would see like, wait, something has changed since Genesis 1. Something has changed because in Genesis 1, commands were given to Adam and Eve. But after the fall, after we screwed it all up, God now comes with promises. And furthermore, he gives those promises in a way where he says, you know what? You be asleep. You're doing nothing. It's all on me. 
Even in this covenant, we see this beautiful promise of God that things have changed. Even though we have messed it up, he is going to carry his people and the covenant will be 100% on him. The connections continue and continue. I share that story just to whet your appetite to how the Old Testament tells us of the goodness of Christ. Next, we read that in him, all things hold together. This made me think of the song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Thank you. He's got the whole world in his hands. Guys, where we last week saw that Christ is the creator, now we see he's a sustainer. Christ is not just the creator, as if that wasn't amazing enough, but he is also the sustainer, the glue, the cosmos, down to the force that is holding the protons and neutrons together in your body is Christ. Christ is holding the stars in some unknown galaxy in their place, and he's also holding together photosynthesis in your succulents so that you can put a picture of them on Instagram. He is holding all things together. He is the glue, he's the sustainer. But this is where we get an opportunity to say, doesn't feel like that. This is where we can be honest and say, "Mm, he's holding everything together. Doesn't feel like that, doesn't look like that. See, each week we have built in this opportunity to be honest with the text. That first week we said, okay, I know that Christ is the image of the invisible God, but if I'm honest, I would say, it's really hard to see God. I'm supposed to see him, but instead I see hatred and anger and brokenness and hurt and abuse. It's hard to see him. And then in the next week, we confess that while we know that we're supposed to be under Christ, we don't always feel like we're in his story. We don't always feel like we're under his headship. Instead, what do we feel, guys? So many days, don't we feel like Adam's headship is heavy? So often, don't we feel like we're wandering in the wilderness? And here, he's got the whole world in his hands. That's not what it feels like sometimes. Sometimes it feels like everything's spinning out of control. Sometimes it feels like everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And it's hard for me to believe that Jesus is before all things, that he's holding all things together. Are you guys with me with that? And here's what happens. Here's how I know that I'm struggling to believe this, guys. That's when fear comes up in me. I have this one incident with fear that has become somewhat of an iconic memory for me when I'm processing fear in my own life. A lot of you guys have heard bits of this story, but my husband and I did full-time ministry in Colorado for about six years, and most of it was really, really good and really, really fruitful. But some sin took root in our heart, and um, we ended up, that job had to end, and it had to end in a pretty messy way. And it ended, this is in 2014, with some relationships being really broken. We had some people that, that because we were in sin, we had really hurt them, people that we worked with on the church staff. And we left pretty quickly, and we left before we could get reconciliation from everyone. And so we moved back to Colorado and our life felt like it was in shambles. It didn't feel like Jesus was holding much together. 
We're living in this tiny little rental. My kids are babies pretty much. And my husband's working some crazy night shift at some kind of intermittent job. And that night, the kids were asleep and I had just a outburst of fear. I was so sure that one of the women that I had hurt, one of the women that I had wronged in Colorado was coming for me. Now, I don't mean like a childhood boogeyman. I mean like the 30-year-old woman version of it. This woman is gonna come back and she's gonna tell everyone in Iowa that I'm a joke. She's gonna tell them of my shame. She's gonna tell them of my ability to manipulate. Even though I was being upfront with everyone I was meeting, telling them that we are in a season of discipline, this fear was huge in me. She is not satisfied. She will come after me and make sure that I never get used by God again. And this moment was terrifying. I was home alone and it was dark and it was scary and I felt like a child. I felt so alone. And the word of the Lord came to me that night so clearly and showed me that this moment of fear, just this quick little burst of fear was actually like a miracle. Because what it was doing was it was like a slap in the face, a a slap of reality where I had to realize I am not in control. No matter what I do, I cannot control the future. No matter what I do, I can't control my enemies. No matter what I do, she could come and do what, say whatever she wants to say. Guys, my fear was actually this very gracious symptom of wrong thinking in my life. I was coming into this new season and I had this plan and I was going to control it and there was not gonna be hurt or broken relationships in this new season. Until I realized, wait a minute, I can't control that. God allowed this burst, this little flash of fear to bring about growth in me. He brought me to a point just between me and him that night where I had to confess, okay, Lord, you hold all things in your hand. And fear, while you don't wanna live in it chronically, short little moments of fear might actually be a gift to you guys. It might actually be a chance for you to say, wait a minute, that might happen. I might lose my reputation. I might lose a loved one. I might lose money. Guys, what, fill in the blank. I mean, there are worse things that we could use as an example, but I don't think we need to go there because it's in all of our minds. The truth is that we do not have control over that. And when we feel that fear, maybe it's a chance to stop right where we are and acknowledge who God is and who we are not. Because then what happened after I confessed that, instead of feeling more afraid or feel more darkness, that okay, I can't control this person, what actually came was peace. What actually came was stillness. Because what happened is I lifted my gaze away from what I was afraid of. And I set my gaze on Christ. And I saw who he was. He was there standing above all things. Standing before all things. And so I sat down. I plopped down resigning that I was not in control and that that was a good thing. 
Ladies, if you have moments of fear, I would invite you to lean into them, even just briefly. Don't settle into it. Don't live a life of fear. Please don't hear me saying that. But could it be that a reoccurring pop of fear in your life is God trying to get your attention, to realign who you are and who he is? Let it bring you to an honest moment with him. I promise you that what comes next is peace and quiet. How this verse comfort me, comforts me then just flows right into how it challenges me, guys. This verse reminds me that I have to stop acting like I'm the glue of everything. I have to stop acting like I am the sustainer of life. Guys, I had a hard time with this. I'll go just right into another story. This, you'll notice this week is very dear to my heart. This week, uh, as I've been in it for months now, has rocked me. When I was a young mom, I uh, went pretty extreme with hyper-scheduling. I know there's some other ones of us in this group and I still kind of feel proud of it. So I'll do like the secret, like hoorah. But, but no, what I'm getting at is unhealthy. I, I hyper-scheduled. I, my baby was born and I set his schedule to the minute. And it didn't matter if he was crying. It didn't matter if he had a gas pain. It didn't matter. I didn't even know. I didn't even think about what he would need because I just wanted to control his life. Part of it was because I was scared and it was a new role for me. But part of it was sin. Part of it was like, I can control this little creature. I can put him on a schedule and he will do as I say. And then... And then eventually, guys, what happens when we act like we're the glue that we are standing over all things? So we get really tired. It's really exhausting to sit and listen to your baby cry all the time and never go pick them up because you might ruin them forever and they'll never go to college or never get married if you pick them up halfway through a nap. <laughs> it's exhausting. But you know what's worse than the exhaustion that comes from trying to control people? It's the pride. It's the pride that happens when it works. It's the pride that comes in there and says that the task or the order or the goal or the schedule is more, more important than the person. It's when we have convinced ourselves that maybe we're not God, but we're pretty darn close when it comes to keeping people in order. Guys, if you're not a mom, don't shut me out. This has to do with so many relationships in our lives. This goes into our marriages. This goes into the people we're dating. This goes into our roommates and our coworkers. There is this bend in us to instead of come under who God is, we want to rival him and we want to control these people. It causes pride when we succeed or seemingly succeed at this. But you know what else it does, guys? If I am in this season and I kind of have my stuff together, I'm in one of those rare seasons. Well, if I'm thinking wrongly about who Christ is and I look across the table at someone who doesn't have their stuff together, I got no time for you. I will think that I am better than you. I will hold my head high and I will judge you because that is what sin does. It separates. I will keep you at the other end of that table in your apparent mess, and I will hold that against you. You can't control your kids. You can't control your schedule. Your house isn't clean. Well, I'm not gonna take time for that. 
There's no time for the friend who needs a listening ear. There's no time for the kids who don't load the dishwasher correctly. There's no time for the friend who has that chronic anxiety when we think that we're better than them. And eventually, guys, it's not just exhaustion, it's not just pride, but eventually it comes crashing down. Eventually that house of cards that we think we have built so meticulously, it will come crashing down sooner or later, guys. And that is a hard day to get picked up from. Eventually we figure out that we are not supreme and we are not sufficient. Guys, we are not first in everything and we are not without need. That is Christ, not us. So guys, first we lifted our gaze to see the image of the Father. And then last week we redirected. So it's like we went like this. Last week we went like this. As we redirected our story from the story of Adam to the story of Christ, right? From the the headship of Adam, the headship of Satan to the fatherhood of God and the headship of Christ. This week, what are we doing? We're releasing our grip. We're, We're letting our hands fall. We're releasing our hands, guys, and how freeing it is. How freeing it is to lift our gaze to Christ and see who he is. How freeing to not feel the pressure to be supreme and sufficient. Guys, fear then, it doesn't stick around. The what ifs or the if onlys, they go away. Neither does pressure, it dissolves. But peace comes and freedom. So guys, let me ask you specifically and actually answer this question to yourself. In what way do you need to stop acting like you're holding it all together? It's not a rhetorical question. Who or what are you trying to control? It is not your role. Ladies, this is good news. It's not your job to hold it all together. You were not built for that. So look at this exalted Jesus. It's his job. Let's move on. Verse 18. Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, so let's go back to that original context, guys. Who do we have? We have Paul, right? And he's writing to the church in Colossae, and he's saying to them, guys, you got it wrong. You just, you got this little thing wrong. You think you need Jewish customs, Jewish laws, or or you think you need like an angelic experience, a mystical experience. No, no, no. He says, you need to see the Uh, supremacy of God, the sufficiency, or let's say the enoughness. It's a new word. The enoughness of Christ, church. You need to see that and then see how you relate to him. See, the threats to the gospel at that time, the threats to the church, it was happening because these Christians were missing this. Okay, They, they were missing, like Emily said, how Christ related to God. They were missing that and they were missing how they related to him. So Paul writes, he's the head of the church. And this is bringing in one of Paul's favorite metaphors. He uses it in all his letters. He uses the body as a metaphor. He says, Christ is the head and you believers, you are the body parts. He's the head, you're the hand, you're the foot, 
You are tethered to him as the head. And this week, we actually went to where Jesus is teaching people about his identity. I hope you enjoyed this story. I learned so much in this. So we opened up to where Jesus is early on in his ministry and he shows up at a wedding. And I thought this was timely. At a church like this, there's weddings every single weekend. Okay, so imagine Jesus is at this wedding. So he's probably got a cup of Chex Mix and he's doing the YMCA, right? And here's Jesus and he's just like new to this area and here comes his mom. And what does she do? She prompts him to perform a miracle. She comes to him and she says, the wine is out. What are you going to do about it, Jesus? Now we looked at how usually this was the groom's job, right? It was a major social faux pas to run out of wine. It looked bad on the groom. And so here's Jesus and he turns water into wine And he does this not just to help out the groom, but he's doing it to reveal his identity. You could actually say it's like he's dropping these breadcrumbs, revealing who he is. See, Jesus' miracles, when we read them in the Gospels, what he does on these small scales, like at a wedding, is revealing what he will do, what he can do on a grand scale. So what is Jesus doing? He is revealing his identity. By, by doing what the groom should do, he's saying, hey, I'm not just the head of the church. I'm not just this detached boss. I am not just this impersonal head, this callous or, or distant CEO. He's saying he is the groom. He is saying the church is his bride. Guys, can I tell you how incredibly comforting this truth has been for me this semester? To see that Christ is the head has brought me some comfort and has taught me some things, but then to see that he's the groom, that has brought me so much joy. Because guys, as much as I want what's best for the people of God, I've got nothing on Christ. As much as I love Veritas, Christ loves her more. So when I feel shaken, by the church or when I feel unsure about what is going on at the church, when I worry about false teachings that seem to be spreading out across our country and I start to feel that fear that wants to come up in me, I remember to look to Christ. I look to him and I say, he loves her more than I ever could. He loves his church more than I ever could. So he will take care of her. It is not my responsibility. He is the head. He is the groom. And guys, it puts me in my place. It allows me then to fulfill my identity. Right? We keep talking about this. We want to learn about ourselves, our identity, our purpose. But not in and of itself. We want to do it against the backdrop of who Christ is. This is one of those times when we see Christ as the head and the groom, then we just settle into who we are when we are locked in on him as the head of the church, then we don't try to be the head, but we gladly fall in line as the hand, as the foot, as the eye, and we serve the church. We don't try to control it. We don't panic when things seem to be going wrong, but we allow that comfort to rush in and tell us, sit tight, keep your eyes on me. I got this. 
Where do we need this truth today, guys? Maybe it's not the church for you. Maybe it's not Veritas or wherever you call home. But maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's even your parents and this desire that you have for your parents to be taken care of or to be flourishing spiritually. You are not the head. And that is good news. You have a role to play, but there is a being who is way bigger than us, who loves bigger than us and actually has the ability to protect his people. Next we read, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Okay guys, this was a little bit tricky for me. I wonder if some of you felt that as well. This was not low-lying fruit as they say. This took some time for me to understand. Why is Paul saying this, guys? He is the firstborn from the dead. Okay, he's drawing together the identity of Christ and the identity of the Colossians. So he's saying Jesus is the first to overcome death, but he won't be the last. Does that make sense? Okay, he is the first among a new kind of people and that's resurrected people, okay? He is the firstborn from the dead. Let's just keep moving through this. I think it'll make more sense as we color it in, guys, because once again, it's from this maybe somewhat heady truth that we are gonna learn about ourselves. Okay, when we are in Christ, then what that means, if you remember from last week, is that we are brothers of Christ, okay? He partners with us and we are called his brothers or sisters or co-heirs. Okay, what that means, ladies, is that when you are in Christ, that, you, that Christ identifies with you, okay? It's like you're standing there and he comes to you and he links his arm with you, okay? Like a buddy at recess, right? He's identifying with you and you identify with him. So when we say he's the first to overcome death, you too will also overcome eternal death. Ladies, practically what that means, hang with me here, what that means is that your sin died when Christ died. If you are in Christ, the sin in your life, it died when he died, it lost its hold on you. It was washed off in the waters. Being in Christ means that when he overcame death, you, every one of you overcame death. You found new life when he was resurrected, okay? So last week we talked about when Christ is our representative head, it means that we stand atop our sins, right? Like we, we briefly went back to Genesis 3 where it talks, it promises Jesus standing on top of the snake, right? It was this prophecy. We talked about how that's us now, that, that we can now also stand on top of our sins, that we don't have to live like we are a slave to our sin. Guys, I think this is really easy to forget. I would say that this is probably the most pivotal thing in my life right now. Am I going to act like this is true or not? I often forget that I am a saint now. Because I am in Christ, I am a saint who struggles with sin. But so often, I live like I am still down on the ground, just getting beat up by Satan, rather than someone who is standing up, 
Satan under my foot, the sin that wants to kill me under my foot. So often I do not believe this way when I listen to condemning thoughts. When I hear these thoughts, and maybe you hear them sometimes in your own mind, when I hear failure type language, when I hear, how could you, Rebecca? How could you do it again? What have you done, Rebecca? You'll just do that again. How about this? You'll always be angry. There's no point even trying to get over it. You know what? That's just who you are, Rebecca. You'll always be a disappointment. If you hear those kind of thoughts in your mind, oh, I'll, I'll always be this way. I can't get over this. I'll never overcome this hurt. I'll never get rid of this bitterness. I don't even know who I am. Ladies, no, no, no. That is condemnation and that needs to be sent back to hell. If you are in Christ, then you are a saint who struggles with sin. Christ identifies with you. That means that he has given you his victory. You have the power over whatever sin you think has a hold of you. Whatever addiction, whatever doubt, whatever weakness, whatever bitterness, you have the power to overcome it. You need to live like it. You can heal. You can move on. You can say no to that addiction. You can choose a better response. You are in Christ. You have all that you need to live life as a saint. You can stand on top of your sin. You can it does not have the last word on you. We are more than conquerors through Christ. We have to live like it, ladies. We have to wake up every morning instead of just listening to those condemning thoughts of, oh, this is a defeated relationship. This is broken. This isn't gonna get better. No, we stand up and we say, thanks be to God because there is no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. Yes, Jesus is in you. And yes, we use this language of invite Jesus into your heart. But you know how many more times the Bible says that we are in him? Way more times. That's what we must build our thinking around. That's what we must build our affections around and then our behavior. Guys, Jesus was the firstborn at creation, but also at the new creation so while we saw him forming mountains and valleys and goldfish and cats and dogs and trees and bushes, we also see him making mankind into a new creation. That is our salvation. So believe it today that you are a new creation. You have the power. You are a saint. Stand on top of that sin. Guys, how do we bring this all together? What did we look at as we saw Christ this week in Colossians 1? We saw that Jesus is not just a mere superhero that flies around saving the common citizen. We've also seen Jesus is not just like a genie in a bottle giving us our hopes and our wishes. I hate to tell you this, but Jesus wasn't created to make your life easier. 
to save you from bad guys or bad seasons. But if we're honest, guys, sometimes that's the Jesus we want, isn't it? Sometimes that's, that's really all we want. God, could you just save me from the singleness or this credit card debt or this detached husband? Jesus, could you just sweep in and save me from this? Jesus is so much more than that. And this is where we will land this week, guys. What vision of Christ do we need to see from verse 17 and 18? We see Christ's authority. I heard a pastor say it this way, Christ is supreme and sufficient. So he's standing first, he's standing over, and he's enough. Where have you believed a little less? Can I ask you that again, ladies? Where have you believed a little less? He's not one of the fixes to my problems. Guys, he is God. He is first and he is last. He is alpha and he is omega. He is the royal heir standing above all things, holding the whole world in his hands. The picture that has been painted this week as we have studied hard is that Christ has authority. And because of that, he looks at everything in this world. You know what he says? Mine. Mine, mine, mine. A quote from an old man named Kuiper says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He has the absolute right to say that. And he says it with absolute purity. He says mine with absolute right and perfect purity. So ladies then, where in our life do we still say, mine? What person do you still say, no, they're mine? What goal, what addiction are you grasping close and you're saying, no, mine? What part of your life are you still claiming the right to? as if you are authority. This is my body, Jesus. This is my hurt, I'll handle it how I want. This is my disappointment, I'll stay in it as long as I want. God, this is my singleness, I'll make the rules. This is my plan to life, this is my money, this is my business, mine, mine, mine. No, ladies, let's not. Let's lift our gaze to Christ and see his authority and then see how he gives it up. Because the God-man who created the Jewish leaders would allow them to arrest him. The God in flesh who formed the hill of Golgotha would then carry his own cross to the place of his death. The God of the heavens who gave life to all, gave up his life for all. Guys, holding all authority, holding all power, and yet he gives it up. Why? So that you can live in him. So that you can hide your life within his identity. 
so that he can partner with you, so that he can invite you to die with him, so that he can drown your fears and selfish desires and raise you up in victory. So that when he triumphs over death, he gives his co-heirs the exact same thing. And so when we ask this question, where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? We say it was swallowed up. It was swallowed up as Christ breathed his last on that cross and that midday sky turned dark and those rocks split and the ground shook. It's like creation was yelling out that the one who held it all together was now dead. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O condemnation, is your sting? Ladies, we say that it is not here. It is not in this room. That sting of death, that sting of condemnation, it is not here in this room. Because when we are in Christ, it has been swallowed up by the authority of Jesus displayed in his resurrection. This is such good news for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, only a God like you would write a story like this. Only a God like you would reveal yourself like this. God, would you help us to respond to it? Help us to understand our fears and then wave goodbye to them. Help us to release our hopes of control Help us to respond with courage to your authority. Father, would you lift our eyes? Would you turn our gaze and would you release our hands? Because you're better, Jesus, you're worth it. It's in your name we pray, amen.